When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Are you concerned by climate change, but feel powerless in the face of such a global problem? Well, today's guest believes that gardening could be a very powerful answer giving us all the way to make a genuine difference. Hello, I'm Lucy, and today I'm speaking to Jack Wallington, designer, author, influencer, and advocate for sustainable gardening. Jack was first discovered through the Monty Don TV series Big Dreams, Small Spaces, where he turned a drab London patio into a plant-packed city oasis. It was a life-changing moment, says Jack who has gone on to turn a hobby into a career as a designer, focused on greener ways to garden. So in this podcast, we discuss the methods and plants that everyone striving to be more sustainable should know and grow. But first, I asked him to paint the picture of what a greener garden looks like. Well, I think a greener garden, it has multiple multiple aspects to it so what one is what uh is i think it's got to be good for us so it's our our garden to enjoy but also it's a, a garden for other life to enjoy as well so things like insects and birds and uh mammals and all sorts of and, and the plants themselves of course and i think it's all of these different things all interconnected and enjoying this space to create something really alive and beautiful and self-sustaining for many many years i think so it's kind of a in my view it's a, a slightly different take on gardens where rather than chucking new things into the garden every single year we take a step back and just enjoy what's there and watch how it grows how it all interacts with one another um, and really enjoy that aspect of it i think of how the garden naturally changes and evolves over time and i and i sort of said how does it look N- knowing that's actually not really its full purpose is it it's as much about how it feels, I think. If I'm if I'm reading between the lines well uh, from from what you've written and what you're saying. Yes, I think I think, um, I, I think a, a a garden for nature can be really beautiful. So I think that's what one thing is quite often we say we talk about mess and leaving sticks and twigs and things. Um, so which is important for nature, but it, that's not. They, they still enjoy beautiful plants as well. But I think it is more about how these. Yeah, it is about how it feels. So when you're sitting in a garden, what? how does it affect you emotionally? How does it affect you? Um, what, what can you hear? What can you smell? 
does it change how you feel when you go into a garden? So you might be really stressed after a day's work um, and you sit out in the sunshine and after about half an hour, are you feeling a, in a different, uh, you're in a, a different state of mind to how you were at the beginning? Has it calmed you down? Has it distracted you? Have you forgotten about things? Um, so that kind of emotive, uh, emotional uh, and how places make you feel is, is really interesting. I think how a space can change your feelings. And I think we don't really talk, we don't talk about that much. We don't really understand it that well. Um, but actually a garden can play such a big role in, uh, in our, I think in our world, we talk about our well-being. So, and our sense, uh, different senses. So yeah, I think a garden can make you feel different. And I think you're right. It's not something we necessarily talked about very often. And it was very much about, um, you know, what, what do you want in your garden? The things, the items, the kind of, you know, the look of it perhaps. But I don't know. I think the last couple of years we've been forced to live at home, to look at our gardens more. It's I sort of feel it's opened up the conversation more. And 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 as a result, you know, you, you've got a new book out called A Greener Life. And and I feel that's very much a product of the last year or two. But I, I imagine it's but it goes back way before then. So t- tell us when you first sort of came across this this sense that the garden was more than a perhaps a physical thing in our lives. Yeah, I think uh, certainly people, I think, people, as you say, people have experienced it for themselves now. So that's, it's like, oh, this isn't just um, wishy-washy talk. It's like this is a, an actual thing. But for me, it was going back, uh, I mean, the pandemic obviously was a, a big aspect for all of us and, and uh, directing us to nature and gardens. But for me, it went goes back probably uh, five or six years when uh, I was probably in my early, I was around my early 30s and I was just at work my I was at that point in my career where I was getting, uh, getting slightly more senior jobs and taking on more and more things and it and it was quite although I really loved it I enjoyed all of my jobs uh, there were aspects of them which were really quite stressful and um they would sometimes thinking about it, it would keep me up at night or uh, you'd feel slightly over I'm sure other people appreciate some of these things like having, having your email inbox feels endless. You can't keep up with it. It's just overloaded. Social media adds to that with notifications. And sometimes it can just feel too much. Um, and I found that in our, our little garden in Clapham in South London, um, when I went out through those back doors and into that little space, all of that would just melt away quite quickly because I'd see all these, the beautiful little flower had, open, had opened and then suddenly a bee or a hoverfly would land on it. And it was just that moment of total distraction and fun and enjoy uh, from that from that little thing happening, and then seeing a bee buzzing off to another flower, and it just completely started to change my outlook because it just meant that all of those worries started to feel pretty insignificant in a way because uh, I could see that the, the, this although the garden seemed quite it, it was talking about flowers and growing things, but suddenly it's really important because all of these insects are. They need homes. They've got lives as well. And what I did in the garden affected their their lives. And um, so it suddenly became much more important. And it just balanced the, or tipped the balance of the scales a little bit. And um, so it took away a little bit of that pressure from work. So for, for me, that's where it, I really started to notice that the garden could change my feelings and impact how I was feeling day to day. And you know you're you're opening up the ideas there of of obviously that that kind of bigger picture that we're all sort of increasingly aware of of the role of our gardens within you know with something you know as significant globally as climate change it's a massive challenge for us all but it's very easy to feel powerless in the face of that 
you know, how, how did you kind of feel that actually you wanted to take that and make it a, more of a sort of proactive part of your life? You know, wh- when did you move on and what was it that moved you from thinking I could do something or or can I do something even to into actually knowing what to do and how to do it to move into this, what, what you call the greener life? Yeah, it's, 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 if you look at some of the stats about the climate, it's really quite depressing. And the more you get into it, into um, uh, so some of the stats from uh, around uh, insects and wildlife is so depressing because just things like um, I think as an example, hedgehogs in our our lifetime have decreased by almost seventy percent and are now bordering on endangered, which is, in my childhood was wasn't even comprehensible it's like that's how how has that happened and there are hundreds of thousands of examples of this because habitats have reduced and reduced in the wild um, and are still reducing at a faster rate now despite everything we know <laughs> about about climate climate change and loss of habitat um but so it does when you think about that you, you do feel completely powerless because what what can you really do um but actually in the garden or with gardens we have a, a tiny no matter how small and it could be a balcony or a even a pot by a door, you have control over a small amount of space. Um, and certainly gardens aren't going to change the course of uh, of nature's decline alone, but they can make a difference. And together, when you start to add up all of the gardens in the UK and around the world, they create quite a sizable chunk of habitat. Um, and so you, by, by planting them up and caring for them with nature in mind, uh, you can actually make a difference and almost instantly. So I remember planting a, uh, a hellebore one year before, as I was planting it into the hole that I dug, a bumblebee. Uh, and this was in winter. So a winter winter flying bumblebee uh, came and landed on the flower and was um, taking the pollen, uh, that's, and the nectar and the pollen from it as I was planting it. So it's almost, in, you can see these instant results, which is really satisfying. And then these plants will just continue growing and multiplying. And you'll hopefully year on year, you'll see these, um, insects or animals coming back and, and doing them. So you, you can see that you have a direct impact. So you can see even with one plant in a window box or a pot, even then it makes a big difference. Um, but on, the, on on top of that, it, just, it opened up my eyes, I think, to the natural world. So on top of planting stuff, I'd go out into the countryside for walks and I just started to understand things a bit better. So through the seasons, you'd see uh, a wild hellebore coming up in the ground um, and it's and it matches the timing in your garden. It's like, oh, this makes sense. Now I can see where they grow in part shade woodland. And it starts to teach you back what to do in the garden in terms of the habitats and things. So I think it all of this has like really opened my eyes to this much bigger world around us. It just it made my world seem much more, whereas I suppose I was going along in life. Um, it's hard to describe it. It, felt like it just gave much more depth to my life because I felt like there was so much more going on around me. And the, the more I... Uh, delved into the natural world and gardens and outside of it um my world just seemed to have so much more to it and it was much more exciting in a way mm, yeah i mean i think you've described it in the book as being life-changing i mean quite clearly it, it was i mean that obviously you know i guess i first came across you when I, I watched big dreams with monty so um you know that was a that was a first sort of public, I suppose, step that you made to reveal and, you know, be quite open to everybody about your garden and your garden journey. Was there a moment? Was there a kind of road to Damascus moment? Uh, you know, tell, tell us tell us about that and your and your and your first steps publicly with the it with through through big dreams. <laughs> yes, I think that that year, that was um twenty fifteen it was filmed and it and it was a life check that was definitely the life changing year where lots of things all happened at once that set this new course. So I think um 
we'd bought our flat with the, the garden outside, the small space garden outside a year or so before, and we started I started gardening in it. And I remember um, I t- Monty, Monty tweeted that he was doing a new series of Big Dreams Small Spaces, and I tweeted him saying how I need help with our garden because I'm I'm really eager, but I still don't really know what I'm doing here. Um, and that yeah, that year was transformative. So we were lucky enough that Monty came and helped us out for Big Dreams Small Spaces, and um, that that was a surreal but amazing and he Monty was absolutely lovely throughout just giving us tips on what to plant and and things I think um, so I, have to, I do have to give credit in that year to in that year I was also watching Gardener's World religiously as I still do obviously <laughs> but it was well, I have, but I have to give full credit because it was um just the amount of tips and things I learned from that year that hand-holding of the tv show um and the magazine and um alongside actually having Monty the presenter come into our garden which is obviously a very lucky unique <laughs> unique thing to have experienced um but I just learned so much in that year and I think that um having someone who is Monty's obviously an organic gardener cares a lot about wildlife um I think a lot a lot of us who watch the show now um are lucky because we've been been taught through that so that that, that in a way has kind of set me on this been all part been part of setting me on this journey um towards really caring about seeing gardens in a different way i think um but yeah so that that year was really transformed because we did so much trying to get to the end of that show was filmed um across about seven or eight months in one year and obviously you have the deadline we have to show this transformation at the end which is a lot of pressure <laughs> uh, but actually it was a good a good pressure to make sure that we did a lot in that year and just the amount that we grew and the amount of wildlife that came um yeah, so that, that's where it all, that's where it all started from, and from there, um, I didn't really ex- expect the kind of the public side of it. And the whole, at that point, I hadn't even considered garden design, although I was being introduced into that world slightly. So I, I changed career um, a year or two later after that. So it was yeah, you, you, it, that is the pivotal year when my life really did change. Um, there's more to it, but I won't go into loads and loads of detail. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of people would look at look at your you know journey, as I say, and and think, gosh, that's that's brave. But um, you know, you look back, and I and I guess you know, what what would you say to someone in a similar position? Because there are so many people, I think, feeling now as we kind of come back to office life, come back to hybrid working, come back to pressures of you know normality, whatever normality is now. Um, it's hard for people to leave the garden behind. Um, you've obviously gone through that slightly before the pandemic uh, and made that change. You know, you've, you've you've got some sort of thoughts and tips on that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, it, it's been such a positive change for me, and there were lots of things. There were barriers at the start. So I, I had a career in a completely different career. Um, it was slightly in writing and other and other bits, but it was. Um, nothing to do with gardening but it was just as time went on I, I started learning more and more so I did I trained with the RHS um studying their level two courses which again that was that was actually during that same year so there's a lot going on in that year um but that, again it really opened up my eyes to the horticulture world and I loved it so much it was it started this journey of because I cared so much about gardening and I loved the actual process of again through big dreams of actually planting up and transforming a garden um that whole process just steered me down this path so for i think for other people they could it's really possible just one you do have to be prepared to do courses if you haven't done them before i think it's um i think it's worthwhile certainly rhs level two learn as much as possible and try different things and there's the practical side of giving up a career 
halfway through because when you switch into a new sector you are you just aren't going to earn as much money to start off with because you're, you're pretty much starting again from scratch um so that was a really big consideration particularly when you have things like mortgages um and, a, and you have to get used to a certain lifestyle and you have to pretty much say right for the next five or so years i'm going to say goodbye to that until i can build up that career again in another sector um but actually the flip side to it is it's I just found personally, I found a, a career that I love so much that it, it does. When people say "do what you love," um, I was suddenly doing that, and so it didn't feel as it was a big life changer. It was less, it's more enjoyable, much slightly less stressful. It has its own stresses, um, but yeah. So I think that's anyone can do it. But I think it's just try and plan it financially and think about the training as well. Um, yeah. So I think those are some of the steps they could take. Yeah, yeah. And that's taken you, you know, into into this greener life that we're sort of here to talk about. And um, actually, you mentioned the RHS courses. Of course, they're increasingly introducing environmental and, and greener, sustainable ways of gardening within the courses. So, you know, anyone interested in that can find a lot actually through the through the sort of recently revised sort of RHS syllabus. But um, let's, let's 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 talk some specifics here. So let's let's get into some of the the real sort of um, practicalities actually about about gardening uh, gardening in a greener way. You know, how should someone start give, give us the sort of most vital maybe two or three ways that people should be looking at their garden again and thinking okay now I want a greener more sustainable way to garden talk us through those maybe yeah top two or three things that you feel are most uh at the, at the beginning of anyone's journey on this yeah I think so, uh, funny enough having a greener garden is actually actually much easier the more I get into this the more I think um having a greener all of these basically all these hard things we used to do you don't have to do anymore so number one uh the most obvious one is don't use pesticides um because if you start by spraying pesticides you're instantly killing all this wildlife and that kind of a although you might kill some insects that can have a huge insect a a huge knock-on effect because birds might eat these insects or caterpillars and things so it's looking at trying to step back and not worry too much about the damage that insects cause to plants because actually I i can promise you over time the garden will as I've discovered um, from our small garden in Clapham and also our, our larger one where we now live in in Yorkshire, um, the, the garden finds a balance. And if you're killing aphids and caterpillars that the birds will eat, then the, then you have a problem. But if you leave them, then more birds will come to eat them and it balances out. Um, the other thing I think would be setting up different habitats. So uh, having things like ponds, small trees or large trees. Uh, so ponds for animals to drink out of, uh, frogs and other wildlife to live in. Uh, also trees where birds can nest or get away from uh, cats and other predators and things. So they can just feel safe in the trees. Um, and particularly trees which produce uh, blossom and fruit. So things like uh, crab apples or hawthorn or elderflower, where they have multiple use for, for various different uh, types of wildlife. Uh, so I think those are habitats. Also, my, the third thing I really recommend everyone do is, is look at composting. Um, so I'm absolute, as many gardeners who get in, start talking about composting, I am one of these absolute compost nuts. And the more you the more you compost, the more you absolutely love it, <laughs> uh, which I promise, if you haven't done composting, it, you won't believe me until you try it, but you will become me at that point, uh, at some point. But then one of the best things about composting is uh, that you're, Produce, you produce your own compost, you're buying in less. So there's less transport and carbon use. Um, it also acts as a recycling. So all of the plant material stays in your garden and can be used. Um, and it, obviously, the compost that you make is peat-free. Um, and peat bogs are 
quite um, precious habitat that we have to try and protect. Um, there's a bigger answer, a bigger discussion around peat, but creating your own peat-free compost is good. And the other aspect of creating your own compost is that the compost bin is one of the best wildlife hotels possible. So we talk about building bug hotels, but actually an open compost bin uh, is going to be your best uh, home for wildlife throughout winter and for the rest of the year. So beetles, um, centipedes, millipedes, uh, bees, wasps, all sorts of things I found in there. And, and, even, and if you're lucky, you might even get things like slow worms or grass snakes in, in there, which sounds terrifying, but they're completely harmless, I promise. Um, so composting is the other thing. So there's lots of things you can do uh, to, be, to, be, to have a greener garden, but I think it, is, it starts with those sort of fundamentals um yeah yeah those those are those are kind of big three to talk about aren't they so but but just yes i, I love the kind of slight geekiness i'm hint, I'm, I'm you're hinting at in in compost go on <laughs> tell us tell tell us about how, how how what's your composting uh system have you got have you got a series of bins do you do anything fancy with multiple bins or what what's what's your approach to it oh my goodness you're, you're opening up a mind for a, a long discussion here. <laughs> <laughs> so i love compost my, my latest uh, when we had a small garden, I just had one compost bin, and that works. You just have to make sure you turned it over and cut. You have to make sure everything you put in is chopped up really finely. Um, so if you have, you can use secateurs or shears to do that to get things down to just a few centimeters big uh, in size. But anything bigger like sticks just won't won't rot down fast enough if, unless you break it up. Um, but on my new setup, which I'm working on now, is to have uh, three compost bins, which are at least a meter. Uh, in size each and actually i had this on my my old allotment in london too um free compost bins which means you can put all of your material into the one on the left or the right whichever way you want to go and then uh once it's starting to rot down you move it into the next bin um and so you're turning it over and then you move it again into the third bin and you can keep topping up each one in a conveyor belt system so you have a non-stop supply of compost um but i i use untreated wood um if you go for a hardwood like oak uh, that's untreated, which means that the wood itself that the bin's made out of will eventually break down. Um, it won't last as long because it's, it, if it's not treated, but a hardwood still should still get you a few, good few years out of it. Um, there is that worry of, uh, we have to talk about, I suppose, vermin. So mice and rats uh, are the, uh, wildlife and they do like a nice cosy compost bin. But actually, if you're turning it regularly, that will scare them off. But the other thing is uh, with an open bin, if you can use not chicken wire, but a really, but you can get um, panels of fine, heavier metal mesh, uh, which isn't too expensive. And you can line the inside of your compost bin with that, which will stop anything big like a, uh, the rats, which you probably don't want in your compost bin, um, from getting in. So you can actually just create a box of mesh inside before you put anything in. But that allows you to still have that open compost bin. Um, so that, that's my setup. It's just a, not, not rocket science, really, but it's just about... Um, having enough of a space to be able to have that conveyor belt of, of bins to keep to be able to keep turning the material. Mm, that's the key, isn't it? Not, not to let it go stagnant uh, and to let air at it, keep turning it. And and as you say, you, you you managed it in a single bin in a small city garden. And so it does, does show anyone can do it. Um, I know a lot of people say I haven't got space for it, but um, just making a small amount of difference will help, won't it? Um, won't necessarily fill all your pots or, you know, give you all the soil conditioning you need in a small space. But um, how did you, when you worked, uh, worked your compost in a small garden, in your city garden, what did you use it for? Um, I used it to start off with for some pots, so I'd use it for um, in some pots, but most of it really is a mulch. And um, 
And that's it. So just putting it on a a small layer of about two to three centimetres deep around some plants that needed some extra nutrition. Um, And I actually found that using compost in that way, you don't... if plants are in the ground and you give them a little mulch of compost every year, I didn't need to fertilise them at all, even really um, hungry plants like dahlias or cannas, which do need extra, they need lots of nutrition to support their fast growth in summer. Um, but yeah, it's fine just using compost. So that's the main thing I used it for. And there's actually one other topic, if you haven't got space for a uh, a compost bin, but you do have some soil, you can just chop up the plants and just put them straight down on as a mulch on the ground. Uh, I think people are scared to do that because they think it will attract slugs and snails. But actually, um, even slugs and snails are useful because they'll break that down in the same way that would happen in a compost bin, but actually directly on the soil. So it can look a bit messy. Um, and, and it certainly does look messy in the winter when you first do that. But it's a great way of just um, creating that kind of nutritional, natural nutrition if you haven't got space for a full compost bin. Mm, and there are, that's a great idea. And there are often ways of doing it in bits of garden you maybe don't see, but further down the bottom of the garden. But it brings us very naturally into talking about soil. And soil is such a sort of key component, I think, of the greener life and the greener garden. Um, tell us what your thoughts are about that and why, why, from your point of view, and I, I know you've talked about that in the book, why, why things fundamentally will start with the soil. Oh my goodness. So soil is absolutely, again, it's one of those things where when you start looking into it, it's really fascinating. So we all know that there are worms in soil, but there is so much more life in it um, than you can ever imagine. So I I think that there are some stats which there's more life in soil than there is above ground in certain places. And you just don't necessarily see it all the time because we're walking across it. Soil is so important. To me, it's the, you know, you have the sun, which is like our charging station for the garden that powers everything but then the the soil is like a battery pack of nutrition which then fuels all of the growth and um, so everything in our gardens obviously grow in soil or compost in pots um and it, i think just thinking about that if you have healthy soil and you're feeding it and looking after it and trying not to dig it too much and disturb try not to disturb it too much um as people like Charles Dowding and Stephanie Hafferty talk about no-dig gardening a lot. Um, but I think it's in in the wild, if you walk around, you see how, again, I think I learn a lot from the wild and soil in particular. You go through a woodland and you see how the leaves fall down on top and they rot down slowly across the year. Um, and then that soil, can, if it's untouched, it can be really well-structured. So I think the structure is also quite interesting where we have this obsession in gardening where we'll dig over soil and trying to get it to really fine grains. But actually, if you leave it and just keep adding mulch in a garden uh, or leaving leaves to rot down naturally, the worms and um, nematodes and in other insect life will actually create that perfect structure for us naturally. Um, even in on our heavy clay in London or up here, we, we have clay in both gardens, but it, um, just by doing that the the soil does over time over the years improve and improve it's so important to get it right because if it's rich and well structured then you create a great habitat for wildlife but also it locks in carbon as well so that's the other aspect of it so um all of this plant material draws carbon from the air which we want to try and restrict in the atmosphere to, to slow down climate change um and so soils, by not disturbing them, leaving plant material in there, keeps carbon locked in. So that's another thing that people can do at home is just by looking at the soil in a slightly different way. So perhaps if you don't always have to dig over a patch um, unless it's really, really compacted. 
Mm, mm. Well, back to your point earlier that, that actually a lot of green gardening is about doing a little bit less rather than doing something or doing more. So it's kind of letting the soil, just adding to the soil rather than necessarily feeling you've got to dig it over every year. You've got to keep it clear. You've got to, as you say, get it down to a fine till. So, yeah, we're definitely rethinking the way that we look at soil. But just a step above the soil now and think about, let's talk about plants and how the, what the role of plants is in, within you know, a greener garden. Yeah, I think uh, planting is really interesting. I think um, as, a, as I'm a designer and for, for other people's gardens and, and thinking about this a, a lot. And I think there's a little, I think we do need to change a little bit about what we plant into gardens. So um, for instance, I used to have, I used to grow lots of tropical plants and lots, so lots of annuals. And I don't think we need to stop growing those. That's absolutely fine, but just address the balance a little bit. Um, so I think one of the issues with uh gardening at the moment is we'll, we'll buy lots of annuals and lots of plants so it's kind of I call it fast gardening where you want to make a big impact quickly um, and that uses up a lot of transport transport use to carbon for transportation um, lots of compost uh, so putting more burden on where does that compost come from so people have uh, growers sometimes do have to turn to peak compost sometimes to be able to keep up with that um, so I think looking more towards looking at our planting less as something to top up every year more as let's really try and get this right and make sure it's a planting that will last for many years and perhaps even potentially even outlive us is the way that I look at it so we're trying to create a plant community a group of plants that grow naturally together and will last and come back year on year so more perennials I think um rather than too many annuals um and perhaps growing more from seed um introducing more wildflowers and even things that wildflowers and plants that people think of as weeds <laughs> uh, so i think uh, lots of things like oxide daisy which will spread around quite rapidly uh, but actually they're so easy to grow you don't have to do anything with them so um, that's one thing and also thinking about uh, water as well and trying to minimize water uh, so things like uh, more drought tolerant plants which herbs are brilliant for um other plants like salvias so i think there's shifting away from plants that need lots of molly coddling uh, so things like i'm a big lover of dahlias and i don't want anyone to stop growing dahlias but <laughs> i used to grow uh, my garden used to be almost 70 percent dahlias and they do need lots of watering in the height of summer they need lots of feeding um, and i use organic seaweed fertilizer um, and lots of compost but actually i've started to minimize reduce how many dahlias i have and grow more plants that just need no care at all um so they put less pressure on but of course also thinking about uh wildlife and dahlias are a good example where i, I love the big blousy dahlias for cut flowers I, I do love them but i'm starting to grow more which are just single flowers and um, so they haven't been so you can actually see the um the nectaries and the pollen in the middle so and in, and if we can see it then the insects can get to it much better as well so i think that there's some of the changes really a, a bit more permanent planting more really focusing on wildlife friendly um but I promise you can you can do all of that and it can still be as beautiful um, as it was before. It's just a look, explore and it, this, the wonderful world of online. Um, and obviously with more, uh, we've got this world, world now an hour long <laughs> rather than the past half an hour and um, all the magazines and things. You can learn so much about plants and you can be more, we're in this wonderful age of being able to find all of these plants now. Uh, whereas I think uh, 20, 30 years ago it was more restrictive. 
Mm, yes, I think the opportunity to have much more diverse planting is huge and so many local shows as well uh, and big shows and, you know, flower shows again taking off very much this year, and, and as, which is lovely um, because you start to meet some of the very specialist growers who are, who are growing in very uh, specific conditions and can advise you. So, um, But you touched there on water. I mean, you mentioned earlier, obviously, one of your key steps is to introduce water into the garden, uh, whether it's a pond or, you know, p- pools of water uh, and so on. But, but but actually weaning ourselves off tap water is, is something I think that's that's increasingly been spoken about. What, what's your view on it? You And now you're in, you're in Yorkshire now, you were in London before, different challenges. Um, yeah, how's that shaped your thinking around uh, what, what a gardener should think about is, is, a, is a reasonable amount of water to use? Yeah, that's a really good question. So in the London garden, um, in the, because London is so hot, because uh, it's down in the south of the south of the UK, uh, but also as a heat bubble um, in a city, um, it meant that, that there were a couple of weeks in in the height of summer where you'd always have to water, and we just didn't have enough t- rainwater. Um, so, I think there's there's two thoughts on that. One, it, it's really important that everyone tries to capture rainwater. So, having a water butt, for instance, is a really obvious, easy thing to do. Um, I know having come, having had a small garden, uh, that's really difficult because you don't want to big ugly tank in the corner um, but i think it's important to try and have at least one and um, we actually had it in the end we had one outside the front the front of the house so it wasn't part of the, the main garden bit just kind of tucked it away um so that's really important i think um going back to plant selections so if there are any particular plants that struggle in the summer you might want to think um yeah actually that's although i love this plant should i actually be thinking about removing it and adding it to the compost heap and replacing it with something that's more drought tolerant. So things like salvias um, and, uh, as I mentioned earlier, herbs like rosemary and sage and thyme, all of these more Mediterranean-y type plants where they, they won't need any watering at all, um, even in even in droughts. Um, I mean, the other, the other thing I noticed was we used to have lots and lots of pots, which I loved, and loads of containers, um, and they were really water-intensive. And so we'd always turn to the, the main water of a hose to, to fill those up. And actually, what I realised was that a lot of them were just sitting on a patio. <laughs> and so, I, which is a bit silly, I just realised, what if I just remove that bit of patio, remove the pots and just plant everything in the ground? And then once stuff's in the ground, it uses much less water because they can the roots can go much further down. And makes again, it makes it much easier for you. <laughs> so it's this kind of a greener garden is generally much easier for everybody. Um, I know not everyone can do that if you if you have a balcony, um, but it's, it is a bit tricky. But um, I think actually balconies and apartment blocks are quite interesting because they could have potentially have quite large water tanks, um, and these tanks don't cost very much, but you could have. Um, we've got some here which are a metre cubed and you get these huge massive gallons of water which should see you through most of um, the the, the dry times really so yeah I think water is it it seems less obvious because it's not not affecting the climate but actually the the amount of we're using water is starting to have that pressure Um, because if the south of the UK continues to use the amount of water it's using but the, the climate gets drier in summer then we'll start to have to use more water, drawing it in from elsewhere, and that uses up more resources and things. So it is becoming more of an issue. 
Yeah, that's right. And, you know, and, and in the northwest, a lot of reservoirs. And of course, in warm conditions, the reservoirs evaporate. So even in, even in the less likely parts of UK, people are seeing water issues arising. We're certainly using more. And so there, I mean, there are tricks, aren't there? You mentioned balcony gardening. And I know you'll have had probably had clients or, or friends, uh, particularly in a city who'll be living, you know, maybe four or five, 10 stories high. And, and you, you get a lot of wind buffeting at that point and that dries things out too. So you can line your pots or line, you know, troughs and so on but um it, it's fascinating to see like a city in like milan have the what they call the bosco verticale so those great big um tower blocks full of plants and i you know i just wonder when we might move to that in the uk it's uh we all want to sort of live amongst greenery and even even in the city uh you know and i, and I know you you very much felt it and and i guess is that one reason perhaps why you moved out was to to be amongst more greenery yeah, I think that's yeah. I think in a city, it's even more important, isn't it, to be surrounded by greenery because we're, we're kind of taken away from this natural world. I think I actually arise a lot of it and think, truly believe we we actually are. You know, we evolved in nature. We feel comfortable in it. So, um, but you, you, and yeah, that is part of the reason I wanted to. We moved out of London. Was not a, we didn't want to leave London because um, we loved it and we loved our little garden. But I did feel the drawer of wanting to be closer to more nature um, and to be able to go for walks and just be able to have have views and things um yeah i think it was just a that, that draw and uh, also our families are all up in yorkshire so that was a big a big impact a uh, big factor in it as well um but yeah i think it's i think we we I mean, yeah i want i personally i just wanted to be able to walk out the door and see nature all of the time and um be able to see different birds and uh, feel that freedom again and i think that's it, I mean, I'm lucky to have been able to make that move out in the countryside. But having lived in London for 20 years, I know how important, and I'll never, I don't think it'll ever leave me, how important it is to get nature back into cities. And I, it's lovely to see that movement now. So I think having seen those, those apartment blocks around the world where people have cracked it and you can get, um, there's certainly there's solutions to everything if we all put our minds to it. So in, in a tower block, you could certainly get collect loads of rainwater from the, the roof, which could probably perhaps not completely deliver all of the water for those plants, but certainly produce a lot of the water for most of those balconies with the right system working through. It's just pipes and <laughs> pipes and reservoirs for storing it in. So actually with a tower block, you've got gravity on your side. So if you have the water at the top floor, <laughs> you could gradually filter it down. Um, so it's lovely to see architects who are, are focusing on that. And I know one thing that you've written about very much is the importance of seasonality uh, within our gardens as well. So wherever you live, and that's probably as important, if not, you know, at, the most important place probably is in a city because it's really easy, isn't it, to be living in a town, uh, just, you know, you see the grey streets and and, uh, and and houses and so on. You're in a built environment. Uh, and seasonality is probably as important, uh, you know, in a small town or city garden than in even the biggest garden wherever you are. So... Tell us a little bit about your thoughts around seasonality and 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 how to sort of bring more of that in and and again as part of the kind of greener approach to your gardening. Yeah, I think um, seasonality is really interesting. Because it's uh, I think for me it's about I love the variety of nature and how it changes through. The, I love how it changes through the year. So one in one month you can feel very different to another. So you're, it makes your life feel more varied. Um, so you can be really looking forward to daffodils in well, snowdrops in February, daffodils in March, and tulips in April. And they just constantly through the year you've got something new to look forward to, which is really I think for well-being and mindfulness that's a, a, a big thing. Now that we're we now living on a hillside in Yorkshire, so we really do feel the seasons. And you can feel like the, the snow 
we get the storms and winters. We you really feel winter, and then but then when spring comes along, it's so it's joyous and um, and wonderful. And I think in in when we lived in London, I was trying to get that back. I think in in the city, you you do still have the seasons, but I think it's you're slightly removed from some of the touch points of it because it's a bit more sheltered. Um, and so in gardens, I would and in our garden and other people's gardens, I try and in, enhance the seasons by really planting for them. So really making sure you have lots of spring bulbs, um, lots of spring flowers. So uh, going, well, I suppose going back to winter, I'd always make sure you have a base of hellebores um, and perhaps some hardy cyclamen through winter. So that gives you something to look forward to and lots of colour through winter, but also that's so important for insects in in the middle of winter when it's really up, um, when the weather's coldest and that it's at its harshest. Um, so things like hellebores and cyclamen coom and um, cyclamen heterofolium, they kind of give you that, that they kind of tide us all over. And then things like making sure you have plenty of spring bulbs like crocus and snowdrops and uh, even actually some species tulips. So tulips is a good one. Thinking about the green greener garden, um, all of these planting for seasons, make sure you're you're planting for wildlife as well for each of the, the months through the year. But actually things like tulips, I love those brightly coloured tulips, but some of them you have to replace every year because they don't—they aren't so perennial, um, and you might have to dig some up if they start to fade. But there are really focusing on tulips that are more guaranteed to be perennial, so they're the, the viridiflora types, which will are, all, are much more likely to come back every year. But also species tulips like tulip uh, tulip turkestanica, um, which are smaller, but they'll multiply and uh, will come back every single year, multiplying each year, and then you you get a much bigger display for much less money uh, so you just have to wait a few years for the display to get bigger um, but then there's more flowers in these times for, for insects um, so yeah I just like to push the push the look of the garden for seasons but also that helps wildlife as well yeah 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 and then bring that through into summer summer's always easy but then going into autumn again can often get forgotten about but um, but then we all love again a great big show of autumn colors so it's again how do you bring that into the sort of small garden uh you know when you're restricted on space what what would be some of your autumn sort of go-to plants for for a bit of seasonality in the autumn yeah autumn. i think even in a small garden you can get things like so small one small tree uh and, and again i mentioned earlier some of the, the fruiting ones but um think things like hawthorn and hawthorn or elderflower uh, so in our small garden we had a purple elderflower uh, called black lace which I, I love but you get a, the flowers in spring and in autumn you get the, those lovely black berries which really add, bring that shiny black color to the garden um pyrocanthus uh, is another great super spiky um so good for a for de, as a, a boundary hedge to deter burglars or unwanted intruders uh, but also really good for wildlife because uh, that spikiness protects birds' nests. But then you also get those red berries, or red, orange, or yellow berries uh, in autumn. So it brings in all of that colour as well. Um, and I think also there are some things like I'd plant, again, it's looking to what plants flower in autumn. Um, there aren't that, I guess it, it starts to, the, I was about to say there aren't that many, but there are actually, there are loads. So you have nareens, nareens or nareenies, however you want to pronounce it, uh, are lovely bulbs for, for autumn, but also lots of prairie and the North American plants, uh, things like monada and echinacea, um, are per- are persicaria as well. So not persicaria aren't necessarily North American, but um, those sort of prairies 
typical prairie-style plants are absolutely brilliant for late autumn colour, and they'll generally flower all the way into the first frost. Even dahlias, we mentioned, if you have single-flower dahlias and you keep deadheading them, I I had them flowering in London into uh, one flower on New Year's Day. (laughs) It was was that sheltered. But um, yeah, so you can... There's lots of options now just for pushing that colour all the way through the year. And to re- and as we say, that, that's good for wildlife too. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned a few things there that obviously will take a bit of time to come to fruition. And I think I'd, I'd probably just want to end on, on uh, with you thinking about um, the idea of time. Because I think, uh, you know, you said earlier um, about how often we kind of throw things at a garden. Uh, you know, speed is the most important thing. How do I make my garden sort of perfect in a weekend? And, you know, let's face it, as a, as a magazine editor, I've been responsible for writing some of those kind of cover lines and promises. But it's it, it, there's definitely a move to slow gardening now, just as it was to slow food. Um, and so that does affect our relationship with the garden. Uh, and I think it does play into, or it's a very much a part of your uh, uh, thoughts around the mindfulness benefit of gardening. And, and I wondered if, if your approach to time uh, generally has changed through gardening and and what, 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 you've, what you would suggest to gardeners about maybe re-establishing a, a, a different relationship to time. Yeah, t- time is an interesting thing because we, we don't really understand time, yet it's, it's, such a, it's always there around us. It's, it's such a, plays such a big part in our lives all the time. But it's, I think in a garden, interestingly, so it's talking about this, the garden is one place where you can actually see the effects of time firsthand because you can, um, so practically for a gardener, I suppose, it's rather than always buying the biggest plants and thinking that's just get the biggest plant for an instant impact. What I love, uh, and most, most of the time I'll plant a garden or a new border uh, using smaller plants and nine centimeter pots or even from seed or bulbs um starting smaller and then watching them grow uh, so i know uh, I, I totally understand I, I, i've done it as well I, i'd love to get the instant impact in the past but i also love this um you plant up a new say it's a two meter border which is just blank and you plant it up with nine centimeter plants and it's really fun in the first couple of years just watching how they grow so paying more attention to how those plants get slightly bigger and then in, uh, so you might plant it as a nine centimeter plant in the first year and it might get one flower um and then it dies back in winter but in winter if you look really closely you can see new shoots that will f- start to grow in, in spring um and you'll see that there are more shoots than there were last year and so you're, you have this closer relationship with the plant and understanding how it grows which is interesting in itself um but you're watching all of these different plants growing up together um, to form a rather than individual plants, but a, a group or a community of plants, a family of plants, um, and how they interact with each other. Um, and I think that for me, that is the most exciting, joyful thing to see how the garden grows with you, knowing that you've played your role in steering that and how it all comes together. And I think that's that's probably the one thing I'd recommend to people is don't always feel you have to get the most established plant because quite often the smaller ones will establish better in your garden because they're still quite young and vigorous. Um, and they, they just tend to, they haven't got used to life in a bigger pot, <laughs> uh, in, com- in comfortable compost. So they all, they, all, they might take a little while to get going. Um, but once they do, they'll be much stronger, more vigorous plants. And then after a few years, you'll have this fully established border, at which point you can go, Oh, and actually now some of these plants are so big I can divide them. And so it gives you it gives you more to do. <laughs> so it gives you it means that you're having more of a, a hands-on role in the in the garden rather than just planting it up for a photo or 
for an instant, for a party or something, you're actually nurturing the space and being part of it. So it kind of gives us a role and a purpose in a way. Um, and then when you layer all of that with wildlife and everything else you're doing, it means you're you're so tied to it. That's why I think it, gardens are so important to, or can be so important and helpful for our, our daily well-being. It kind of, they keep us grounded and anchored. And if you, uh, yeah, so I think thinking about time and slowing stuff down a little bit actually unlocks the full benefit of a garden for us as well. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>